this fall, we plan to follow the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel through 1 Kings. As we read these narratives about these kings, it's crucial to remember that this book tells us about historical events, but it's also not merely a historical record. No, as it chronicles the fidelity and the failures, the obedience and the disobedience, the virtues and the vices of these kings, we learned about these rulers then and there, but the book is designed to speak to us here and now, inviting us to reflect on the virtue and the vice, the fidelity and the failure, the obedience and the disobedience, to reflect on all of it in order to learn about God, in order to learn about his ways with us in Jesus Christ, and in order to learn about ourselves as fallen and sinful human beings who are loved by God. And so this is history, but it's not merely history. This is no mere history lesson. It is history with a prophetic edge, an edge designed to teach us and to direct us in the love and the service of God. And in chapter 12, last week, we encountered Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who came to the throne. And after coming to the throne, he in his own foolishness divides the kingdom. He had opportunity to win the northern tribes into his favor by reducing their work and tax burden, but rather he doubled down, promising to make it worse. And we saw that he was presented to us like a new pharaoh, that though Israel was in the promised land, they were in bondage under Rehoboam's idolatrous rule. And so then, in the second half of the chapter, we are introduced to Jeroboam, who begins as something like a Moses, appealing to Rehoboam to lighten the burden. But then suddenly Jeroboam, who was like Moses, becomes like Aaron. He constructs two golden calves for Israel to worship. And so despite some early promise, Jeroboam proves to be a disappointment as well. He puts the golden calves in the north in Dan and in the south in Bethel. And as we read further through Kings, we learn the unfortunate situation that this sin of worshiping before these golden calves or bulls was not limited to one generation. It's not something that passed away, but rather this idolatry had a durability that hung with Israel from generation to generation. In fact, after Jeroboam dies in 1 Kings 14, we will see it mentioned no less than 15 times in succeeding generations that they continued in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, until finally in 2 Kings 17, when the northern tribes are sent into exile. And it's there in chapter 17 of the second book that we hear this stinging critique of Israel. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. It was a perpetual and persistent problem inherited from Jeroboam that plagued the church. 
And so this draws our attention to a significant problem that we need to hear today. It identifies for us the power of idolatry. It identifies for us our susceptibility to get caught up in all of this. And it also identifies for us the durability of these idols and passing from one generation to the next. And so we are put on notice about the great danger of transferring our trust from the true and the living God to that which is not a God. And so it's critical for us this morning to ask and to answer the question, why is idolatry so powerful? What pulls us into its realm? And why does it so easily become enshrined in the church? Because, friends, we are like these Israelites. And as we consider Jeroboam's reign in Israel, we see four reasons of why idolatry is so seductive and why it's so powerful in the church. First, we'll see that idols reflect our quest for autonomy or independence Second, we'll see that idols address our insecurities, the deep places of fear and uncertainty in our lives. Third, we'll see that idols play actually on the truth, even of God. And fourth, we'll see that idols capitalize on accessibility. And so as we seek to understand why idols possess such great power over us, let's consider those four things. First, idols reflect our quest for autonomy. In verses 25 through 33, we see that Jeroboam engaged in a very ambitious reform campaign of religion in the northern tribes of Israel. He redeveloped every spiritual practice that was going on there in Israel. He begins by forging two golden calves or bulls. He then constructs at least two temples, two shrines, one in Dan in the far north and one in Bethel in the south. He established his own non-Levitical priesthood, appointing them to positions of power. And then we also learn that he instituted his own liturgical cycles with feasts and holy days on the 15th day of the eighth month. This was all in juxtaposition to the Israelite law, to the covenant that God had made with his people. But in verse 33, we hear God's evaluation of all of these innovations. And it's there that we hear the word of God. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And friends, this is God's evaluation of Jeroboam's reforms that they were a fabrication of his own heart. They were a product of his own mind. They were a figment of his own imagination. It was a religion which exchanged God's revelation of himself for a creation of Jeroboam's own sinful mind. He'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And friends, it is this exchange. It's an exchange that's nearly as old as time itself. It is an exchange that is about authority, about who has say, who has authority, who gets to choose, and who gets to command. 
Of course, in Eden, Adam was given permission to eat of every tree of the garden. But yet he was to abstain from one. He was granted an enormous feast, but yet he was to fast in but one place, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to eat of this tree was not to break an arbitrary commandment of God's covenant, but rather to eat of that tree was to state the desire and the attention, not just to know the difference between good and evil. That's not what is at stake. In eating of the tree, Adam was declaring his desire to be the judge of good and evil, the arbiter of right and wrong, the one who was in authority. It was a declaration of independence from God. And Paul explains that this is the exchange that takes place in the heart of humanity when we rebel against our creator. In Romans 1, he refers to this fatal event In verses 21 through 23, listen carefully. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And friends, this is the tragedy. That when we struck out on our own, when we sought our own independence from God, when we go our own autonomous ways, we still craved some form of deity. We wanted to satisfy that religious impulse planted within us. But we went for gods of our own making. And in doing so, we fabricate gods that can satisfy that innate religious desire while also freeing us from the true and living God's authority and his claim over our lives and his call to renounce our independence from him. And so an idol allows us to eat our cake and to have it too. We fulfill the religious desire, yet we retain control. We have a God answering our spiritual needs, but we have a God of our own making who will ask nothing of us beyond what we want him to. And friends, this is the first great attraction of idolatry, is that the God we subject ourselves to is one of our own making, and we actually control that power. And Jeroboam's idolatry was all about a God devised from his own heart. This is the first danger for the church. Now, second... We see that idols also address our insecurities. If you follow in verse 26 and 27, we are given insight into Jeroboam's motivations for making the golden calves. Now the kingdom, he says to himself, after the kingdom has been divided, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now the situation is this. In Deuteronomy 12, in the Mosaic Covenant, Israel, all the tribes were to go up three times a year for three annual festivals to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. The festivals were Passover and Pentecost and Booths. 
three times going to approach God as an entire community. Jeroboam perceives that if the ten northern tribes were to continue in that system, that they may turn against him and they may rebel against him. And so this, is, this fear is somewhat reasonable in the Machiavellian world of politics when we simply think on that flat, horizontal dimension. But there's also something deeper going on here because Jeroboam had actually been given a promise by God. If you flip back to chapter 11 and you look there in verse 38, you'll see that God sends a prophet And the prophet Ahijah, he speaks to Jeroboam and he says these words that if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Jeroboam was given a promise A promise from God that he would build him a sure house. That because of Solomon's sins and because of Rehoboam's continuance in those sins, God was going to bless Jeroboam and his rule over those northern tribes. But once in power, we see what Jeroboam does. He doesn't entrust himself to that promise. He doesn't hold to that promise in faith. Rather, he transfers his trust and he transfers his faith to another place. And he does it, establishing and speaking back against his insecurities and his fears. It's the insecurity of his position that causes his faith in God's promise to absolutely collapse. And he goes about making things secure in a way that is in keeping with his own imagination, in a way that is in keeping with his own authority. And friends, it is precisely this quest for security that lies at the heart of idolatry. We designate something as God in our lives, ceding control and power to it, because we are seeking to address some deep insecurity, some deep uncertainty, some deep fear. And friends, this is why we can't mock these ancient Israelites as we read their history. Because we participate in those same insecurities and in those same fears and those same uncertainties. And we too are tempted to transfer our trust from the promises of God to things of our own imagination and our own devising. And so this is how insecurity plays into idolatry. Third, we also see that idols play on the truth. That is, they play on the truth of God's revelation. Jeroboam takes consultation, much like Rehoboam. He consults with some of the elders, we suppose. And then he decides to fashion two golden bulls. These bulls were popular symbols in ancient Near Eastern religion, and they symbolized virility, life-giving power, and reproduction. And so Jeroboam cast these two images, despite the prohibitions of the second commandment. And then he has the audacity 
to gather all Israel. And in verse 28, we hear his words. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And friends, this is where idolatry becomes extraordinarily complicated. The golden calf was a symbol brought in from the surrounding nations. But yet, Jeroboam synthesizes it inside of Israelite faith and practice. That is, the truths of God's covenant. That I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And Jeroboam says, these are your gods who did that. And so he has taken the truth of God and he's mashed it together with the error of idolatry and worshiping before something made by men. And so there are aspects of truth in Jeroboam's religious system, but it's completely compromised by its disobedience. The system imports parts of God's covenant while ignoring other parts. It's a messy intermingling of divine revelation and the human imagination. And friends, in our own day, we have to possess extraordinary discernment in this regard, recognizing truth and error. And when the truth of God is being synthesized with the beliefs of human culture and sinful devisings, we see this in a wonderful example in the short book at the end of the New Testament, 1 John. And there, the Apostle John closes the letter with an admonition. The admonition is simple and to the point. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Verse 24, chapter 5, the final thing he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, the bizarre thing is that through the entire five chapters, he has not mentioned idolatry. But rather, John has been pushing back against a group of false teachers. And these false teachers were declaring that Jesus hadn't actually come in the flesh. That Jesus, in his incarnation, that this was not true. That it only seemed that Jesus had come in the flesh. Due to certain currents in Greco-Roman philosophy, there were many who didn't believe that the living and the true God could come in human flesh and that he would participate in the physical world. And so philosophically, it was just a non-starter for them. It couldn't simply be that way. And so they concocted a Jesus of their own. They designed one that made sense to them. Since God could not become a man and dwell in flesh, it only seemed that God did so. And John recognizes that this version of Jesus being proclaimed by the false teachers was a distortion of the truth. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He was declaring to them the need to be careful, to exercise discernment. That not everyone who names the name of Jesus and uses the name, not everyone who takes up the concepts of God's covenant and speaks of his love and of his deliverance from bondage, not everyone who does that is pointing us to the true and the living God. And the great danger is that the teachers traffic in the truth, just like Jeroboam. 
And so idols play on the truth, and that's why we're susceptible to them. And finally, in Jeroboam, we also see that idols capitalize on accessibility. Jeroboam constructed two temple shrines, one in the north, Dan, one in the south, and Bethel. But Israel was commanded in Deuteronomy 12 to have one temple that had one altar before which all of Israel was to come. And this temple with its one altar was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It was cumbersome, but the entire system was a sacrament. It was also a prefiguring. It pointed towards something that was to come, a redeemer who was to come. The presence of God, not in a temple, but the presence of God in a man. The temple of the living God, our Lord Jesus himself. It all points to Jesus. Points to the Jesus who gave himself as the sacrificial offering to reconcile us to God. And so there was to be one temple with one altar. And so Israel was to participate in that system centered on Jerusalem. It was cumbersome, requiring those three annual pilgrimages, Passover, Pentecost, and booths. And so Jeroboam comes up with a clever system. You have to give it to him. Let's construct two temples, especially so the people in the far north don't have to go as far and take such a difficult journey. And let's put one in the south near Jerusalem that will draw people there instead of going to the holy city. But he went further than this. That wasn't the only step towards accessibility that he took. But also Jeroboam simplified things. He only constructed one festival in the eighth month on the 15th day rather than three. And all of this idolatrous system kept making it easier and easier for the northern tribes to approach God. But then it's also important for us to consider something about the images that he crafted. Those fabricated golden bulls that he had made. And if we reflect back on the first time we see these bulls appear in Israel's life, we gain insight. If you remember back to Exodus 32, Israel on the honeymoon with God, freshly redeemed out of bondage in Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, there at the foot of Sinai. God thundering on the top of the mountain, Moses missing for some 40 days, and the people of God at the foot of the mountain, not allowed to ascend the mountain, but yet there in the presence of God. And it is there in Moses' absence that Aaron says, bring all your gold trinkets, and he melts them down, and he forms the golden calf. Many, of course, ask, why? Why in the presence of all of that majesty? Why in the presence of all of that manifestation? Why, after hearing the very voice of God, did they then forge an idol? And friends, it's incredibly important for us to understand that all of that mountain with those three gradations to it, where only Moses was allowed to pass to the top, the elders to the midsection of the mountain, and the people, the congregation at the foot. This is the same structure that is then revealed in the tabernacle and the later temple. 
that it was mediated worship. And it was mediated worship because of human sin. That human sinners could not approach God without atonement. That there was the necessity for sacrifice. And that God was not visible to us. And that there was this mediated thing that had to happen in order for us to enjoy communion and fellowship with God. And so what Aaron was doing in constructing the calves was taking God off the top of the mountain where he dwelled in fire and smoke and he brought him down and made him accessible. He made him relevant. And you can see what he's doing. It's a powerful thing that Jeroboam does in putting these golden calves in front of the people. It's a way of skirting around the worship of God that required such elaborate need for mediation. The idol provided direct access to what was alleged to be the divine presence. And friends, idolatry offers us this version of God. It downplays our alienation from him and makes him accessible to us. It offers us a form of spirituality without the need for atonement or reconciliation. It offers us a way to commune with God without dragging us into all the bits about our sinful rebellion against him and how corrupt we actually are. It offers a form of spirituality that avoids sin and the need for a dying savior. And friends, this is perhaps the most pernicious and dangerous thing about idolatry is it offers a God that allows you to ignore the truth about yourself. It allows me to have a God that enables me to not reflect upon myself and all of my need. And this is the power of idolatry. It lies in its accessibility. And so you may ask, Chuck, if, if idols have been so pervasive and they've been such a problem, and an idol is just simply something that I transfer my trust to rather than the living God. If they're so potent, what hope is there for me? Is there any hope for the church? Are we just doomed like Jeroboam and all the generations leading up to chapter 17 to fabricate a version of God in our own heart? to fabricate a version of God in our own mind. How do we escape the trap? This week I was reflecting on programmatic statements John Calvin makes in his institutes in the first chapters. And he's defining the Christian life and he uses the word piety, but by that he just means the service of God. And he's giving the definition for what piety is. And very simply, he says, piety is the love and fear of God induced by the knowledge of his benefits. And friends, it is this definition of piety that actually is the way out of the idolatrous trap. The love and fear of God induced by the knowledge of his benefits. How does the church escape the trap, the power, the potency, the durability of idolatry? How do we escape? It's the knowledge of his benefits. 
of all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ, all the gifts of creation that he's lavished upon us, the gifts of his covenant and of his great love in redeeming us out of our own sins and sending Jesus to die for us and to be raised and all that he promises for us in Jesus, this is the church's means for escaping idolatry, to be induced by the knowledge of all of that great benefit, to meditate and to reflect, to know and to cherish that great benefit of what is ours in Jesus. This is the means of escape. And so no, you're not condemned. But we must put all of our trust in the mercy of this God to renew again and again, to renew day after day the knowledge of that great benefit, the knowledge of that steadfast love. And friends, this draws us away from all that great power of idolatry. And so let's ask him for his help. Father, we acknowledge all of our weakness. That like Jeroboam, we can be drawn into all the trappings of idolatry. We are susceptible. We so easily transfer our trust to other things. Help us in all of our weakness. And God, we ask that you would induce us by the knowledge of your benefits, by the knowledge of all that you've done for us in your son to be faithful and true, to love you, the Lord our God, to worship at the one altar appointed for us, and that is the cross of our Lord Jesus, to know all that he's done for us. Draw us to the love and fear of your name. We ask in Jesus' name.